fascinates me. It's what fascinates everybody now. It's AI. Holy right. cow. Holy cow. <laughs> and AI and music. Everything. AI and sensors. It's in 2022 is the year that we developed AI. In this episode, I'm talking with Joe Paradiso, who's a professor at the MIT Media Lab, an expert on sensor systems, the Internet of Things, and electronic music, who built one of the world's largest modular synthesizers, and who completed a postdoc at ETH Zurich in the early 80s. This is the We Are ETH podcast, and I'm Susan Kish, your host. Joe. Let's talk about what you're doing right now at the Media Lab, which is, if I understand correctly, you're teaching a class on the metaverse with a bunch of fascinating guest lecturers. How did you pick that topic and what are you going to be focusing on in the course? Sure. The metaverse class is a, a special class that we formed this, this semester. Actually, most of us probably have dabbled into aspects of what you would call metaverse over the last decades, really. And uh, in some sense, there's nothing new about it. Uh, but of course, the new technology always lets you do different things and look at it in a, in a different way. And uh, in this class, that's kind of what we're doing. We're trying to explore it from all these different vantage points to really capture uh, a snapshot of what this thing is becoming and what it could be. So it's called Metaverse, really, what, when, how, and why. <laughs> that's the subtext. And uh, the way I'm doing it is uh, is kind of a hybrid class where we have a, a seminar uh, where you invite two well-known uh, practitioners in something related to Metaverse uh, to give talks, back-to-back talks. It's a two-hour session. And then we, uh, we have project sessions with the students who are taking it for credit. So we drill down into some of the core technologies and, and teach them how to you know, develop in some of these environments and brainstorm projects that they can do to, to, to explore it. So everyone has a different opinion of what it is. I think if you look at the Media Lab, um, we look at it as it really a, a cornucopia of, of ideas. So it's not just putting on a, a 3D headset and being immersed. It's this world of information pushing and pulling on you in different ways through different conduits. That's what I'm fascinated with. So of the bazillion definitions of metaverse, right, what's Mm -hmm. the one that resonates with you most now, today, in 2023? I'd like to think of it as certainly a place to experience information in different ways. It's it's just connected information manifesting itself into your your awareness in different ways, right? You know, then you look at the subtext. You have the game worlds where you go into an artificial environment, mm-hmm. but then there's the real world connecting through this. And that's right. what I like. It's more, if you go back in history and speculative fiction, you have books like uh, Werner Vinge's True Names, which is a great insight into, into that kind of a thing. Who was the author again? True Names? Uh, Werner Vinge. He used to be a professor at San Diego State in computer science, but he's one of the world's foremost hard science fiction writers. And because huh. he's a professor in computer science, of course, he knows all of this uh, this stuff pretty well. He used to come visit us at the Media Lab. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you've got the real world. Can you make a richer connection to the real world through this intermediary of what would be metaverse or through the, uh, the different devices you could wear? I'm looking at the screen. It could be that, right? And we have manifested lots of things on the screen with surround audio and things like that. You could put on a headset if you want. Or I also have my watch, right? My watch is tied to my doorbell mm-hmm. and people come and it kind of pulses at my wrist. And, you know, I'm connected physically to a space through a haptic device in this case. So there's a whole scalable 
ecology of ways this information can manifest. I think it's fascinating to think of smooth ways to transit this. So you know, have your toe in the virtual water, but you're still in the real world, but then you get pulled into immersion. And how is that going to be addressed? Do you think all of this accelerated during COVID? I think people saw the reason for it. Right. I think the whole the whole presence conversation, everybody gets now pretty much because uh, we, we didn't want to be just at home, even though we were, we wanted right. to connect. We wanted to see a museum. We wanted to hear exactly. a concert. We wanted to yeah. dance. Yeah. And can you go somewhere without going somewhere? This is That's uh, a great way to say yeah, it. Yeah. So I think there's a lot more we can do. I mean, what we have is, it's great that we have what we have because it got us through but it's not perfect. I, I remember the beginning of, of Zoom when we were quarantined. I'd have to give talks once in a while or you know, run class or something like that. And people would you know, always, after a while, put off their real-time video feed and put on a picture. The problem is the pictures were always have them smiling and the people in the real world, they wouldn't, they wouldn't <laughs> be looking displeased, but they wouldn't be smiling the same yeah. way. So you, these f- feedback cues you always use with an audience to see if they're following you, if they're, if they're there with you. It, it, it's not there. <laughs> so you have to learn how to go on autopilot pretty quick. I used to call it Zoom-induced paranoia. In a way, that's it. <laughs> Do they not like what I'm saying? <laughs> They've all gone off to have a cup of coffee and nobody's actually there. Yeah, that, that's the good news. Or, you know, you just look at the real people, but they don't look happy anymore because you're comparing them to people that are all smiling. So it's very weird. We got used to it. Though. So in a talk you just did in Paris for this <laughs> Da Vinci Center, you talked about Neri Oxman's Krebs Cycle of Creativity. Right? Yeah, you, you saw that talk. It was well, so much fun being there. The joy of the, of the internet and YouTube, right? Yeah, that's true. But can you talk about what that is? Because it does feel like there is a magic that sometimes happens at the MIT Media Lab that you manifest in the work that you've done. What Neri was trying to address there was uh, kind of the tension between art and design, which, you know, she works at that boundary, right? She's an artist, but Mm -hmm. she's a designer, and she really works back and forth. Her group would publish in technical journals, really well-regarded journals about materials and fabrication, so on and so forth, as well as put on great exhibits, which is what we love to see at the Media Lab, because she's kind of doing both. Mm -hmm. So she basically expanded it, because you also have art and science. You have engineering, design, art, and science, and, and they have a similar relationship. The beauty of this is that you can transpose it any way you want, and it's still an argument to cross a boundary. So uh, you look at design and art. Art is the high world. Design is kind of applied, but that's not exactly true for people who work in design. They do incredible innovation, and it can be art. I mean, mm-hmm. it always depends. Engineering and science. Uh, some of my engineering colleagues are actually doing wonderful science, too, and some of my science colleagues are actually doing engineering to some extent. You know, it depends on the level of questions you're asking. They're different at their extremes, but there's a, a flow between them. And then you can always jump between engineering and design. And art and science may be a bit more of a leap, but uh, people recognize that more. There are similar modalities of thought to some extent. In science, you're trying to figure out what's going on in the world. Art, you're trying to you know, find a new way to express something in a different way. But it's always searching the new, breaking fresh ground. That's what you know, science is about. And you know, engineering, you're always trying to do something innovative too, sure. But science, you're trying to get a new discovery. Art, you're trying to come up with some piece no one's ever seen before that's going to blow your mind. So that's a similarity there too. And You're both breaking boundaries. Yeah, it's breaking boundaries. Yeah. And you, know, you look at the similarities between the fields, but you know, the media lab and why we drew that cycle is because it is all about breaking the boundaries between it, where we can go from one to the other. And uh, it's one of the few places, I think, where we can do it uh, as fluidly as we do. And it feels like you do that, right? You work in music. 
You work in science and high-energy physics with words like muon that I have no idea what they mean. You work with engineering because you build those crazy synthesizers with all those, anyway, lots of complicated things. So it sounds like your career actually embodies that. Or am I being overly simplistic? No, I think that's why I came to the Media Lab, because it's a place where I could do kind of everything I like to do and not have to do something strictly on the side. It could all be part of my occupation, which is great. I don't have to worry where this activity or question fits. As long as it's innovative and and can make a statement, I can do it. Of course, some of my life is a trajectory. It's not all happening at once. So I did come from high-energy physics. I did work on on muon pair production and measurement at the ISR at CERN. I lived in Switzerland for two years before I went to ETH. Before we go too far, what is a muon? It's a heavy electron. Okay. So it's like an electron. A muon has negative charge, uh, a negative one. So the muon is essentially a heavy electron. And a muon doesn't have components to it, like the electron. It's sort of a basic material, basic thing. Muon and electron, both are point particles, as far as we know. I mean, they could be super strings if you want to probe it uh, finely enough, right? Uh, but we, we won't get there with the kind of experiments we can make. For all practical purposes, the muon is a point particle. And as far as we've measured it, it is. The electron is a point particle. Okay. How did you get from studying at Tufts to flying all the way to studying at CERN? Well, Tufts, I, I was a physics and electrical engineering double major. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I love physics because of the questions it was asking and the uh, mindset that it took. And I loved engineering because I liked to make things and I loved electronics. I've been build, building electronics since I was a kid. I built my first synthesizer actually when I was at Tufts because I loved electronic music at that time too. So I uh, got into graduate school at MIT. They gave me a, a fellowship there, and uh, I got a chance to work with Ting's group. He had just won the Nobel Prize for the discovery of the charm quark. It was a group that was clearly on the move. They were making things or building a detector for uh, the E plus E minus collider at, at, in Daisy and Hamburg, mm-hmm. the Petra Collider. He had an experiment running at CERN, which is the one I wound up joining. Got it. And then you went to what I think you referred to as a small technical college called the ETH. <laughs> yes, I did. I did my thesis at CERN. And that was just so wonderful because uh, uh, CERN is a, is a city of physicists, really, from all over the world. It's just exciting. The discussions in the canteen, the people you meet, the students that come every summer from all over Europe is another wonderful thing. Because I was a kid from the States who had never been to Europe before. And now suddenly here I am hanging out with, uh, you know, I hung out with the Germans one one summer. It was a wonderful time. Then the next summer I hung out with the Italian students. Because I'm an American. I'm intrinsically naive, right? Back then, see, when I go to CERN now, and I love this, the young people identify as being European, and much more mixing between the different countries. When I was there, the Italian students would hang mainly with the Italian students, the Germans with the Germans, the French, of course, but the French were in France anyway. But it was such a fabulous time just being with the other students, never mind learning physics and being in such a great place. And I love Switzerland so much, I figured, okay, I'll, I'll go back to ETH. So, you know, I, that, that wasn't the exact plan. I was thinking of going back to CERN, but Ting basically had put together a proposal for LEP while I was at CERN, while I was finishing. And that activity started to really pick up as I was doing my thesis when I went back to MIT. Hans Hofer at ETH was one of the fundamental members of that consortia Ting had built. So there was an MIT-ETH alliance that was formed really between Ting and Hofer. They uh, took on the task of building the central detector at LEP that uh, Heinrich Valenta, another dear friend at the time, one of the co-inventors of the drift chamber, Heinrich uh, pretty much invented one of the main tools uh, of high-energy physics at that time when I was there. 
he had come up with this new kind of drift chamber called the time expansion chamber, where you slow the drift velocity down so you can get more resolution. But anyway, uh, this crazy chamber, uh, ETH decided to build it, and uh, they needed help. And you know, the group said, why don't you go and, and plug into this team and be the MIT guy uh, at ETH. So go and work with the group. And I, I did. I did. And, but this was not at the main campus downtown. This was up in Hoang? Yeah, it was in Hoang. There was no experimental physics that I knew of that was downtown. So that was all in, in Hoang. And Hoang was a very quiet place in those days. Uh, now I go, Hoang is just lively. You even have dorms up there. And so students are there. It's, it's alive. You know, you've got all kinds of other departments there. There's a great picture of you with your feet up with a synthesizer that you had built. Yes, yes. That was the one in my apartment. Ah. What, what happened in Zurich is that, uh, okay, I went there kind of supercharged MIT style. And you know, ETH, of course, was very conservative back then. I was warned before I went. It's very conservative at ETH. And, uh, you know, you aren't really a conservative type person. Be careful. But you should go. You should go. But I'm warning <laughs> you. I was, several senior physicists basically told me this. And even ETH did. Hans Hofer himself told me this. He said, you know, it's it's really different at ETH. <laughs> it's very conservative. I got there. So I don't care. I'm going to go anyway. I went and uh, the first year I just ran on inertia, essentially. Right? I was just working constantly. Because in Hunk, there was nothing else to do. It takes a while to really settle into Zurich to meet people, especially mm-hmm. back then. At CERN, it was easy because you have students from all over Europe. You have international people. So you could plug right in. I plugged right in. So right. I had lots of friends in Geneva. In Zurich, I didn't know how to plug in. So I was working all the time. And uh, that was okay for the first year. And uh, I got a lot done in, in you know, developing the new electronics from the chamber and testing some ideas out. But I couldn't do that anymore. After a year, I needed something else in my life. Yeah, my old girlfriend in the States decided that, okay, you know, long distance relationships are different now because there's Zoom. Right, <laughs> well, but you, then you just had the telephone and those were long distance calls. I, oh, I it was that. extensive. I actually plotted my phone bill and uh, I, got, it takes, I could get a phone within three months. It took a while to get a phone back then too, but in three months I got a landline. We do like the once a month call, whatever it was. And you wrote letters. Did you like write letters? We wrote a lot of letters. So letters, yeah. postcards, stuff like that. But at the end, uh, when things started to drift, which they, of course they would have to, because it's long distance before any kind of contact, uh, my phone bill went up astronomically and then it, uh, it dove down. But uh, yeah, I needed a life, basically. And eventually I got to, I had Swiss friends, I got to know people. I did a radio show at Radio uh, Laura, I believe, so probably oh, still there in Zurich. Cool. When I first started, I uh, would go to concerts and got to know some of the music people. I needed to do something else. So I decided, okay, I'm going to build this. I have all these ideas about new synthesizer modules. I have a lab. I have you know, time because I've worked so hard. I, I can do work in the evening. So I started building synthesizer modules. I figured I could do maybe four or five. I, I did like 80 or 90. I forget what, how many. What you is a synthesizer module? What does that mean? What I built when I was an undergraduate was a modular synthesizer. It's like a rack of test equipment in a way, right? A, mm-hmm. a module is a unit that has a certain set of functions. You can use it to generate sound, oscillators, uh, you know, sample players. And I had a speech synthesizer that I found talking in a gas system in Aachen, one of our collaborators. And I got a hold of the chip and built that into a module when I was in Zurich. So, so they can make sounds, they can modify sounds like filters and amplifiers mm-hmm. and things that can distort the sound in different ways. And they can produce control waveforms. So you have envelope generators to generate the contour of the sound, things like that. But in a modular synthesizer, you connect them with wires. But uh, when I do these pieces, I do different kinds of 
of, of things on my synth. But what I love to do a lot is uh, put in massive patches that uh, just play autonomously. Because when I do that kind of a work, I'm an engineer because I designed all these modules. I'm still designing some now. I'm modifying my pedals as well. I buy commercial pedals for guitar players, but they can do amazing things with sound, but I can actually go in and put my own signals in to twist the way they behave in different ways. So all of my pedals have extra jacks in there so I can plug into my synthesizer and really make it breathe. What's a patch before you get too far? A patch is essentially putting wires in between the inputs and outputs of different modules so that the synthesizer does something. If there's no patch in there, if there's no wires in a modular synthesizer, it doesn't do anything, right? Lights will flash, but it doesn't do anything. But if you start patching up a sound structure, you're connecting sound sources to outputs, you're putting in modulators of different sorts, you have different kinds of control, logic and control circuits that come on, and they make the thing breathe and change and evolve, right? It's just so much fun to do. You build a music machine, essentially, through these chords. It's like programming. And uh, you just listen to what kind of unwinds from it. Can you play us a patch? Yeah, of course I can. Now, there's an anecdote about you doing music in one of the garages in Hang. Yeah, yeah, that's indeed true. I, uh, I love the sound characteristics of, of the parking garage there. The ambience of a place really is almost like a smell. It has a certain feel to it, right? And the Hung parking garage, before they put the acoustic treatment in it, which happened, I think, about maybe 10, 20 years ago, if you made a noise, it would echo forever. Huh. If you closed your car door, it would be like a huge crash that would take many seconds to die down. So I thought, okay, I should do some recording here. And, you know, to put set up a synthesizer unit there, a set of modules there would be awfully hard. I bought a melodica at the store down the street from my apartment, and I went and played it, put microphones at a few places in the parking garage, and just walked around playing my melodica so you get that. Ambience. Oh, that's so cool. Uh, there was no one there at night usually. Once in a while, <laughs> someone would come out, and they'd look at me in a weird way. <laughs> they understood. It was okay. So after you did your studies in Zurich, if I understand correctly, you took a right turn and decided you wanted to do spacecraft control systems? Yeah, I was... Uh, you got bored? Well, no, no. I, I was a little alarmed at, at where high-energy physics was going with the huge experiments, the time delays, you know, it take, takes decades before you put the experiment on. You have teams of thousands of people. So is this really what I want to do? And it wasn't just me. I mean, the field in general was starting to come up with that identity crisis then. But I was uh, coming back from a party in Geneva. I was going back to Zurich, and I was reading the Herald Tribune. And there was this little article in a tiny article saying NASA wants scientist astronauts. So, oh, that's maybe what I should try to do. <laughs> so uh, I figure, how do I do this? I don't know anything about spacecraft. I figure the best thing is to, you know, go someplace where I could learn. Right. And after living in Europe for four years, darn, I loved it, and I still do. But I thought it's time to come back to the States and, and, and you know, pick up here. And, you know, I'll, I'll go back to Europe, spend time there, but let me, let me transfer over. 
Draper Lab, where I worked as an undergraduate, it's you know, a spinoff of MIT's Air Astro Department. They're, one of their main claims to fame is that they did the guidance navigation control for Apollo. Uh, they did the Apollo flight computer, and you know, and they kept on after that. They had a strong liaison with NASA, and uh, they were very active in shuttle. So I went and visited some old friends at Draper, and they said, yeah, definitely, come back. We want you. And they gave me an offer, a good offer, actually, to work with uh, the group that, that did the NASA work. Oh, how cool. And I thought, okay, this is a way to do it, so I can learn all this stuff, and I can be close to NASA. And heck, I can apply to be an astronaut. And I did, of course, but uh, since I had thyroid cancer, it was an automatic rejection. You know, it, Chances of getting that position are never anything to rely on. I have some very good friends that are astronauts. I have infinite respect for them. It's, it's a special kind of a person. So uh, it may not have been for me, but it definitely wasn't for me because of you know what, uh, what I went through uh, uh, when I started being a graduate student with RA cancer. Fortunately, I'm good. It was cured. It's all good. But wow. they took off a box. So that was off the table. But I, when I make choices like this, I like to look at, certainly you want to take a wild road, right? I like that right. road that goes somewhere interesting, but also a road that's going to lead to other roads in a way, where probably there's going to be a lot of other branches, a lot of possibilities. And I saw going to this, be learning spacecraft and learning this other stuff, this could lead to other things. Granted, applying for an astronaut maybe give me a motivation to, to jump, but it doesn't matter if I don't land on that narrow pad. Probability is low anyway. Wherever I'm going to go is probably going to be pretty interesting. Very cool. I've gotten so close to so many NASA labs, and uh, there's such great work that, that's happening in and around them, especially now. I mean, now it's incredible. But what happened after that is I started getting back to high-energy physics because ETH called me back, huh. actually. Uh, Sam Ting's group started a LHC detector proposal. It's called what's called L3P to take our L3 detector, beef it up, and make it work for the Large Hadron Collider. So we have a cheap detector, uh, but still could work. And uh, I went back for two summers to uh, work with the team to look at different aspects of that. And then when I went back to Draper, I had my own contract with the uh, Super Collider to do precision alignment with the detectors down there. So I was doing, for another two years, again, high-energy physics, both with ETH and with uh, the U.S. consortia. Very, very cool. And then the Media Lab uh, formed, and that was a siren call for me, and I went. But, you know, when I left spacecraft control around that time, I thought I'd never do spacecraft again. Uh, totally wrong. We actually have... We've got five or six projects in space now. I just wrote an article with my students about moving ubiquitous pervasive computing applications into space. And it goes over all these trajectories of projects that started as something we did for Internet of Things, basically. What would be an example of that? What, what's an application? There are a few, but a few good ones. But one good example probably now is a little micro-robot that we built to crawl on clothing for dynamic wearables. We had this crazy idea of wearables that could change their position. So wearable computing now is like my watch. We would have a badge or you'd have a chest strap if you want to measure, you know, heart rate and breathing or things like that. Uh, you have glasses. They're all the canonical things. But what about a wearable that can kind of move to be where it wants to be to do whatever function it wants? You know, this evolved with one of my students. I was, we're talking about the Intel Selfie Drone, which was a really conceptual example. It was one a, a design competition where you'd have a, a drone that would be on your wrist as a watch and you could flip your watch up and it would you know, go up, take a selfie and then come back. I don't think it was ever built as such, but mm -hmm. it, it's a great idea. And we started thinking then of robots that can crawl on the body for different purposes. And we kind of went and made these micro-robots to crawl on clothing. It won a, an award at, at WIST, one of the big ACM conferences for human-computer interfaces. Uh, and then I pushed the student to think about robots that crawl on the skin for medical purposes. For telemedicine, this could be another approach where you can navigate the skin and make measurements, deliver therapy, whatever else. And he developed a version of that. But we had these micro-robots, and we started thinking about space. We thought, okay... 
maybe they have a role there. My student, Ariel, who's uh, graduated now and is running her own space institute slash company uh, looking at large space structures, she had this idea of using them to look at the health of space structures. So they could crawl. So having an EVA or an arm get to the place it has to get to to inspect, it may not always be possible. Just run these little micro-robots that can traverse the structure and right, look at it. Right, they because they don't need air to breathe in a big space no. suit and the whole bit. And Very you can pack cool. a lot of technology into a small robot now. You can have enough batteries so that it can you know, get more or less where it needs to be and then recharge or can even have maybe solar cells to scavenge power if it's in the sun. So we, we built a fleet of these. We did zero-gravity experiments on flights. But then we had an opportunity to bring one to the moon because uh, an MIT spinoff, Lunar Outpost, is actually launching a set of rovers to the lunar surface really within the next year. So there are two of them going up. One actually soon, maybe. You never know, right? It could get pushed, but it's within months. And the one we're on is going to go around to the, the end of the year. Very cool. And we have... So many grams of payload to put a tiny rover on the top of this little thing that will land. It's going to crawl out on the back of the big rover and uh, make thermal measurements to see how well the, uh, the, the, the heat transfer surface is working. Oh, that's so uh, cool. It's a proof of concept, more or less. But yeah, we're going to have the world's smallest planetary rover uh, going out on top <laughs> of the big one and making some measurements. That sounds extremely cool. Oh, it's fun. Just getting back to the ETH, how do you think those years and those summers at ETH influenced the work that you do? It was a period of development in so many ways, especially the, the two years I spent there because uh, uh, I was living in Europe. I was doing all this deep electronics. I was heavily integrated into you know the, the high energy physics community at a fundamental level. I grew a lot as a researcher and I developed you know more and more appreciation for Europe. It's like a second home in the sense that uh, I uh, spent my four years in Switzerland and uh, I go back often now for you know, lots of collaborations, lots of colleagues. And I just feel at home there because of that, that time I spent. During that whole period, you know, there are moments when I was kind of, ETH was so frustrating because it was conservative. It's different now. I have so many friends that are doing all this wild stuff. I go there and it's exciting. <laughs> I have the students that come from ETH to my group. They're always, they've always been good. Zurich is, a, is such an important part of my life. When I go back and look at the pictures and think about the times I spent, it, you know, if I hadn't gone, it would have been very different. I don't think it would have been nearly as, as rich as, as, it, as it was. When you go back to Zurich, what's your favorite place? It's a great question. Well, I go to the, I used to go to the record stores. My friend Veit <laughs> Stoffer ran Rec Rec Zurich. I've known him ever since I lived there. He he just closed the shop down. But I was one of his last customers because he closed it down after I was in Zurich last time. And we had a great uh, fun do dinner down the street. It was so much fun. But uh, yeah, I, I, I would hunt out music always, right? And I'd hunt out performances. I used to go to the Rota Fabrique and places like that quite sure. a bit. Zurich had a real avant-garde. This is another important thing for me because Zurich was a center for all that because bands are traveling in Europe. They'd always stop in Zurich. People I'd never see in the States. And there is something I miss. It's the food. Really? The Swiss food. I mean, it's uh, <laughs> not the healthiest food, but it's so good. And uh, when I go, I always get... Too many Geschnitzeltes and uh, <laughs> Rahmschnitzel, whatever else, right? It's uh, that, that creamy Swiss food with Rushdi and maybe an egg. It's so good. Uh, it's hard to find it here. And I was with a friend in Harvard Square trying to think of what to do. And uh, and I remember there was a Swiss restaurant. We used to have a Swiss restaurant. Maybe you remember it. It was called the Swiss Alps, I believe, in the middle of Harvard Square. Yep, I do. So we sat down. I ordered some stuff. And I ordered a beer, a Herleman. Oh, and, my you know, gosh, right. Yeah, the real Swiss beer. No, I hadn't seen it 
at all since I've been, but I took a sip. It was like Proust's Madeline moment, right? Where all the memories come back. The sip of the Hurlman, whoa, all these memories flooded back. It was, it was just incredible. That's, that's wild. And what are you curious about now? What are you reading? What are the oh, books on your bookstand? That's, I got, I've got so many books that I haven't read because I'm always reading a thesis or a report or reviewing a paper, and that's not good. When I have a chance, I always love just reading uh, mainly fiction books, but other kinds of, uh, of books as, as I can. I love science fiction. I've long been a huge fan of Stephen Baxter, the British hard science fiction writer. Uh, he writes kind of what I would call physics fiction, where he incorporates uh, you know, what we see as some possible emerging physics principle or crazy idea into uh, some sort of a amazing concept in a novel. And I'm reading something a little closer to fantasy that he did. He uh, wrote this series of books with Terry Pratchett. Before he died, he basically mapped it out. And it's uh, basically the long cosmos. It's one day people are able to suddenly uh, step between parallel worlds because they have this little device that somebody posted on the net that just has some simple components in it. And you just flip a switch and boom, take a step and you're somewhere else. So he has a whole series of them. They're just tremendous fun. And I'm reading the last one now. So I carry this with me. It's, it's almost done. And what is it called again? Uh, that one, this one's The Long Cosmos, but it's the Long Earth series. It's the last book in the series. Uh, I read Permutation City a while back that totally blew my mind about you know, living in a simulation, more or less. <laughs> and this one is basically about, uh, I believe it's about other ways for, to, to basically expand through the cosmos, not just you know, physically to go there. Uh, you can send other things. <laughs> I, I will see when I get through it. Uh, Adrian uh, Tchaikovsky is one of the new darlings of sci-fi, and I just picked up Shards mm -hmm. of Earth because it sounds awesome. I haven't read anything he's written yet, but this is top of my list. But what fascinates me is what fascinates everybody now. It's AI. Holy right. cow. Holy cow. <laughs> and AI and music. Everything. AI and sensors. It's in 2022 is the year that we developed AI. We see it. Because yep. before it's it was tangible. always so fragile Abstract. and so elusive. Yep. Right now, of course, a lot of it that we see is text-based, where we go in with prompts, we say things, we get responses. It's essentially training on uh, language and sequences of language with transformer models. Uh, but it's incredible the way that kind of builds a cognitive structure in a computational device that can start to uh, generalize, right? These are discussed at all levels of the media and research now. So it's, it, we're, figuring, we're just finding out what this is. And we don't yet know where it's going to stop. So. Right. Uh, it's, it's an incredible moment. It really is. I've got a project now that I'm doing with um, one of my students talking about music and AI. We've seen progress there. Certainly computational imagery uh, and AI is huge. You have all yeah. these platforms like uh, Stable Diffusion, MidJourney, so on and so forth. Dolly, where uh, people, uh, I've done a lot of it too. If I need to make an image, even for an article, the kind of a fanciful image that sums it up or a cover for one of my talks, I'll go into mid-journey, give it some examples from things we've yep. done in the group, give it some prompts, and boom, I'll get this incredible image coming out. Oh, yeah. Joe, thank you. That was a wonderful conversation and story. Oh, my pleasure. I, I loved it. I enjoyed it very much too. I'm Susan Kish, host of the We Are ETH series, telling the story of the alumni and friends of the ETH Zurich, the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich. ETH regularly ranks amongst the top universities in the world with cutting-edge research, science, and people. The people who were there, the people who are there, and the people who will be there. Please subscribe to this podcast and join us wherever you listen. 
and give us a good rating on Spotify or Apple if you enjoyed today's conversation. I'd like to thank our producers at ETH Circle and LA Media, and to thank you, our listeners, for joining us.